I know that teachers often will have uh, the pobrecito syndrome with L's. And pobrecito in Spanish means the poor little thing. So because they are not English proficient, uh, they water down the curriculum as well. And, uh, you know, as uh, Melanie said just a second ago, uh, I think we need to take a look at the assets that the kids have to offer. Because the kids have, all, all kids, all families have funds of knowledge that they can bring to the classroom. And we don't take advantage of those funds of knowledge. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might we make math instruction more equitable for all students? Why is it so important for educators to recognize how their own biases and beliefs affect their ability to deliver equitable instruction to English learners? How might we infuse language and culture into existing curriculum so they are part of content instruction rather than just a separate element? We discuss these questions and much more with Rachel Ruffalo, Melanie Morales-Vanhek, and Jose Franco, who all played important roles in developing a pathway to equitable math instruction, which provides resources and guidance to support Black, Latinx, and multilingual students. The pathway offers guidance and resources for educators to use now as they plan their curriculum, while also offering opportunities for ongoing self-reflection as they seek to develop an anti-racist math practice. The toolkit strides serve as multiple on-ramps for educators as they navigate the individual and collective journey from equity to anti-racism. Rachel Ruffalo is the Director of Educator Engagement at EdTrust West, where she leads engagements with school districts through a multi-year process that involves a mixed methods research study to identify opportunity gaps and systemic inequities and a closely facilitated planning process to develop actions that address the root causes of inequities. Melanie Morales-Vanheck is a program coordinator for the Los Angeles County of Education's Multilingual Academic Support Unit in the Curriculum and Instruction Division. She currently works with the MAS unit team, providing technical assistance and professional development in support of Los Angeles County's districts and charter schools as part of the county office and statewide systems of support. Jose Franco serves as director of West Ed's Math Pathways and Pitfalls, which focuses on enriching students' mathematical comprehension and academic language development in tandem. He advocates for teachers to orchestrate mathematics discussions that enhance student voice and identity. For more information, including full bios of all our guests, check out our show notes on whatever platform you are using to listen to this episode of Highest Aspirations. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with resources to help you support your English learners. If you'd like to find more information or contribute to this series, go to elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. And remember that Elevation has two L's. You can also subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when new episodes are released. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with our three great guests. Rachel Ruffalo, Melanie Morales, Ben Heck, and Jose Franco, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thanks so much, Steve. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Steve. I'm excited for this. Absolutely. Me too. And there's three of you. So I'll say to everybody at first, this is the first time we've done this, but we couldn't just take one of you because you all have different roles in this work, which is really incredible. Um, and I wanted to, we actually wanted to make sure that all of your voices were represented. And I think that that will come across as the, um, as the conversation moves forward. So 
you know, we're talking about um, the pathways to equitable math instruction. Um, and we're going to get into that from a variety of angles, talking about the work that you've done. Um, and I know that one of the most important things for you when you started this work was to recognize uh, or identify and recognize the barriers that are in place to prevent those equitable experiences in math instruction for um, marginalized students. And you did this through these five strides that we'll get into today. Um, and I want to talk about first about like, you know, why was this created? Who created it? Why use the term stride? And I know, Rachel, um, you can kind of start with this to give us the overview. And I'm asking you to do a lot because there's a lot here and we're going to dive in. But if you could give us the basics to kick us off, I think that would be a nice foundation for the conversation. Sure. So I will get us started here. So when we first started thinking about this project, it was sort of early pandemic, and we were operating under the assumption that, yes, students' schooling had been disrupted in the spring, but they're all going to be going back to school in the fall, and teachers were going to be in the situation where they were needing to make some strategic instructional decisions. What standards should they focus on? How can they create learning opportunities that had the highest leverage for equity? And we really wanted to provide them with some tools that they could use in the moment in the fall. And as we got together and as the summer progressed, and of course, as the pandemic kind of had their had the spikes and the fall was really looking uncertain in terms of what school was going to look like, we decided that this was not just a pandemic response project. This, this was really an opportunity for us as a team to think about what are those barriers to equity, the barriers that we have now that have been made worse through the pandemic, but really pre-existed the pandemic, the barriers that um, are present in the classroom, but are actually symptoms of much larger problems around racism and lack of access and opportunity. And so the project got pretty deep um, as soon as we brought together the collaborators. And I will say, we had an amazing team of collaborators. Um, you know, Ed Trustwest had the um, kind of the privilege to coordinate the project, but we could not have done it without this amazing team, including two of the folks who are joining us today, Jose and Melanie. Um, but we brought together educators, both classroom educators, people who are supporting teachers, um, people who are researchers and um, college professors and professional development providers. And they're the, the folks who really decided what are the what are the barriers to equity and how can we create some tools that will help teachers to address those barriers and also create opportunities for long-term reflection and growth so that we can transform and really dismantle these barriers. So the toolkit was really taking on quite an ambitious um, task from the beginning. And the idea of um, the title, we, we called it a pathway to equitable math instruction because we realized that um, this is not a checklist. This is not a quick, um, these are the steps you take and you have arrived. It is really, um, it's a journey and there are multiple on-ramps to this journey. And we wanted to um, really communicate that these strides are opportunities for people to to enter and to grow. 
Yeah. And I think if you look at it, which I have, and, and, you know, I spent some time with it, particularly back in October when we were first chatting, I like your idea of, I think you said on ramps or entryways to it. There's a variety of different ways to approach it. Um, and it's really impressive. There's a lot of work that's been done, um, to, to make this accessible to a lot of different folks from a variety of different perspectives. And I don't think we're going to have the time to get into everything, um, but we will dive into a few um, uh, key pieces of it, especially as it pertains to English learners. You know, one thing that you said, Rachel, that I think um, is really interesting is that you know, this, this was, you said that we realized quickly that this was not just a pandemic response project. Um, and I'm really glad to hear that because it's nice to see that some of these things that people have done in response to uh, you know, the the issues, particularly issues of equity that have come up as a result of the pandemic are not just band-aids, that they're going to be things that grow um, and that expose larger issues that are kind of at the root of the lack of um, uh, of equitable experiences that we saw uh, and that we continue to see. So that's right. I just wanted to kind of mention that. I think that's really nice to, um, to, to highlight. Um, it, I also want to like, before we kind of dive in here, I think it's really important to talk about the overarching issue of teacher biases and beliefs, which which you spent a lot of time talking about. And, and you know, I, I want to kind of get a baseline. And I know that there's a variety of probably different answers here. And there's a lot we could talk about. But how do those uh, biases and beliefs um, impact math instruction, particularly for English learners? And, and what can we do to get teachers to recognize they exist so that they can then do something about them? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, this idea of, of bias, both individual and kind of manifestation of bias in our systems. It was one of the, the first barriers that the team surfaced. And it really is um, that um, addressing that barrier is a thread throughout all of the strides, although stride one really focuses on it head on. And, um, you know, it, it gets at this idea of math as being a, a subject that is often given kind of special status, like mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, some people are just natural math people and other people are not. And our understanding of what that means to be math smart is in our society, it's, it's long, it's very racialized and it's, um, the students that, um, that are, you know, in our classrooms, who the, the messages that they've received throughout their education, throughout what they see in popular culture, the teachers that they see in front of them in the classroom are oftentimes messages that reinforce to them what it means to be smart. And it's often Black and Brown and Native American students and students who are learning English who are receiving messages that, um, that their, you know, that math is not their subject. And, um, and so that's one thing that we really wanted to counter, both in terms of the individual beliefs of educators, as well as how that belief has manifested in practices that have been the norm in a math classroom. And so um, in that first stride, there's uh, an opportunity, it's actually a workbook that individual teachers or teams of teachers can go through that um, that uphold what are characteristics of anti-racist math, and and then it there's a process that a, that a team of teachers can go through of engaging in some challenging questions and some good content um, 
reflecting on that, um, acting and reflecting again. And, and it's, it's just, um, we've tried to take something that can be very challenging and um, kind of amorphous and put it into a process that is accessible that anyone can enter and really actually have some very deep engagement. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. I'm sorry, go ahead, Melanie. Just wanted to piggyback on some of that special treatment that uh, Rachel mentioned. The team that um, got together for this looked at how math is used as sort of that, that gatekeeper as to whether students are going to be able to um, go on to higher level math courses or if they're going to end up in remedial courses. So that is then going to impact a student's, we call the math identities. So whether I am good at school or I am not good at school based on the gatekeeper's placement of me in that math course. So really looking at how do we, we flip that narrative and one of the the other gatekeepers is those um, standardized state tests. So when you look at the um, groups that we were supporting in this um, equity toolkit, those are the students that when you look at student groups uh, for the state of California, they're not scoring in those um, standard met or exceeded ranges for that math assessment. So, for example, with an English learner student, a teacher looks at their roster, sees an EL, and is having this belief of them as being underachieving, as opposed to looking at the research around the benefits of being multilingual and what that does to your brain. So uh, being able to give teachers a tool to flip that narrative and look look at more of an assets-orientated approach to supporting students to flip that identity for themselves. Deep. I'd like to add a little bit more about the teacher bias and beliefs because, uh, you know, often, and I'm not just uh, focusing on teachers because it's our real educational system. We assume that owls uh, lack relevant uh, prior knowledge, the experiences, the language. So, you know, oftentimes uh, owls uh, get watered down curriculum. Uh, I often see uh, classrooms in high school in particular where they get sheltered math, which is uh, content that is not rigorous. I, uh, I know that teachers often will have uh, the pobrecito syndrome with L's. And pobrecito in Spanish means the poor little thing. So because they are not English proficient, uh, they water down the curriculum as well. And, uh, you know, as uh, Melanie said just a second ago, uh, I think we need to take a look at the assets that the kids have to offer. Because... Uh, the kids have, all kids, all families have funds of knowledge that they can bring to the classroom. And we don't take advantage of those funds of knowledge. Yeah, really good points, um, Melanie. I was say thank you for bringing those up. And, you know, a lot of this is kind of under the umbrella of taking an asset-based approach, um, which, which when done, at least in my experience, having talked to a lot of experts in the field, when done um, appropriately and when done well and when done systemically becomes something that uh, happens in schools kind of automatically. But when it's not done in a way that is um, set up and organized systemically like you've done in the um, in, in the work that you've done, it, it can be really difficult to achieve for an individual teacher who may lack training, um, who may have some of those biases that we're talking about now. Um, so really nice to hear that you're doing that work. Your comments also add to, bring us to a nice transition to um, the fact that, uh, as we mentioned, you know, teacher leaders um, like you um, help create this this toolkit. That makes me happy for a variety of reasons, particularly because I was a teacher for high school teacher for a long time, and I craved opportunities like this, and I just 
couldn't find them, the ones that really had an impact. And clearly, um, you've done this 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 work really well um, and have been involved in it, which is great. Um, two part question here, and Rachel, maybe you can take take the the first one, and I bet it's a, uh, a an easy answer and a quick one. But what you know, what did teacher leaders like Jose and and Melanie bring to the table? Um, and then the second part of the question, which maybe uh, maybe Melanie and Jose can take as, um, you know, how will it help teachers that are using it moving forward? So Rachel, if you want to take that first part of the question, I'll leave that to you. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, when we were bringing together the team of collaborators, we were very mindful that we wanted uh, people in various positions, including classroom teachers, people who were supporting teachers, people who had experience developing curriculum and delivering professional development. But, you know, at the end of the day, while we wanted a very high quality product, we also wanted it to have validity in the eyes of the people who were going to be taking it up and looking at it and using it in their classrooms. And so it was really important for us to have those people who would be in, in the classrooms and in the schools to make sure that the tools kind of passed that test. Like if they looked at it and said, I would use this in my classroom. I will use this in my classroom. This is this is helpful. Or what would make this helpful is X, Y, Z. You know, having some templates, having some links, having some videos attached. Those were all of the pieces that we really needed to make sure that this, at the end of the day, you know, this tool is going to be in the hands of, of the teachers and the people who, who really um, are in a position to implement it. Yeah, far less guesswork involved. You're not like trying to reach out to a bunch of teachers to do, you know, some discovery. You have the people that are doing the work or that are in the classrooms doing this work and, and are able to tell you whether it's it's valid and, or not. Um, uh, Melanie and Jose, I'd love you to add add to that. And I know that, you know, you're probably pretty humble people, but I'd love to hear how you think that your contributions to this will help, um, you know, other teachers moving forward. Aside from just the validity, what else do you think that you brought to the table there? Um, if I could uh, answer the specifically the stride that Jose and I uh, worked on as content developers with our colleagues um, is looking, it's a guide. So we've created a template. So something specific, a starting point for teachers and a framework on how to bring in those equitable practices. And just to go back to what uh, you and Rachel were talking about with the group that came together, we had such a great group. We had folks who were County Office of Ed um, employees like myself, we had folks uh, from nonprofits. Uh, we had uh, folks at the university level and then classroom teachers. So when we would meet to go over our tool, it was exactly as Rachel said. We had our ELD teacher say, yeah, that's not going to work. And then offer suggestions and, and the tool got um, adjusted several times before um, it went, it got published because we needed to ensure that we had all the views. We had the you know student face-to-face, -face, but also the systems um, sort of district and county level bird's eye view of how this fits into other pieces as well. You know, Steve, I'd like to add to what Melanie just said, uh, speaking for her and myself, both of us, uh, our first language wasn't English. You know, so we're coming from that perspective as well. And we were both classroom teachers. And uh, I know in my personal experience, I always taught uh, bilingual classroom settings. So I often reflect on what kind of experiences those kids were having, similar to mine. And what could I take from those experiences so that I could share with my colleagues at different grade levels? 
yeah, level of empathy and experience that is much needed in this kind of work when we're thinking about the students that we're trying to serve here. Um, I love what you said, Melanie, too, about, uh, uh, you know, when you just said somebody could look at something and say, yeah, that's that's not really going to work. I've, I've been in that position so many times. I, you know, we're talking with researchers and people who really mean well and are doing great, great work. But it's this kind of ivory tower approach. And you look at it, you're like, ah, I don't know. That's that's not going to work. Though. So you need both of those people together uh, or those types of people together. And what a great opportunity to bring folks together and bridge that gap between research and practice, which is something that um, that I, I'm uh, quite often, um, probably too much, quite often pr uh, preaching. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people, when they think about this kind of um, work and the reason why it's not sort of um, taking off the way that we'd all like is um, they point to a lack of, of teacher training and professional development, um, both pre-service and sort of sustained in-service, um, as that then it becomes a barrier to that math equity piece. So how are you going about um, addressing that challenge, particularly as it pertains to English learners? This is Rachel. I can start. Um, so, yes, you're absolutely right that kind of the lack of PD or the um, insufficient, inadequate PD was prominent on our list of barriers because this is hard work and the instructional shifts that teachers need to make um, require a lot of uh, learning and coaching and practice and reflection. And if that's not built in to, uh, you know, a teacher's work life and, and the professional learning that's available to a teacher, it's, you know, that those shifts are not going to happen. So we, um, our teams designed many of these strides with uh, teacher learning in mind. And so um, you, you, I mentioned before the workbook um, for stride one um, and the the fifth stride is actually one that is geared towards um, coaches and administrators because we know that working on big shifts in beliefs and instruction and in practice that that's a long term process and it's one that's very difficult to do on your own and so having a, a relationship with a, a a colleague or a coach or an administrator and having them help to keep you accountable on this journey is really mm -hmm. important. And so that stride five is sets up a coaching structure with really helpful tools kind of embedded in that itself. And that stride can be used in conjunction with the other strides as well. So if a teacher really wants to focus on that first stride around um, anti-racist teaching practices, they could use that content along with the structure in stride five to kind of embark on that process, embark on that journey. And, and that's the same for, for all of the other um, strides as well. And Steve, I'd like to just uh, piggyback on what uh, Rachel just said right now, because uh, when we launched this uh, stride four, uh, I quoted some friends of mine that would uh, actually echo what Rachel was talking about, because uh, a friend of mine, Rochelle Gutierrez over in uh, Illinois, she talks about enabling teacher practice toward equity for all students requires uh, continual, honest self-reflection and a willingness to confront and change our belief systems. Love it, it. Requires, it requires teaching mathematics from a different paradigm. And to address equity is not an easy task, but it's a necessary one to take. 
and and if I can piggyback on what you said about what Rachel said, the idea of that accountability, right? I mean, if you don't have accountability and a partner here who's who's willing to kind of, um, I guess, gently or maybe not so gently push you in the right direction, you have to be willing to accept that feedback. That goes back to the bias work and everything else. You can't do it in a silo. You can't do it alone. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad glad you mentioned that. What a nice quote too. And I think also in the in the math content. Um, sort of looking at teacher training and PD, the PD is is focusing perhaps on the understanding and the unpacking of the standards, not so much on in California, the standards for um, mathematical um, practice. Did I say it right? Right. Math practices. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm the, I'm the ELD side of the house, Uh, but the standards (laughs) for the standards for mathematical practice. So looking at that social emotional and that cultural relevancy for a mass content, like moving away from just, can you compute this? And can you tell someone else how to do that same computation? But all those other pieces that are involved in it, Rachel was speaking to just the the relevance of some of that, it, it can be missing. So now this pathway provides you with, with guides on how um, a, a district could look at their math program and, and bring in those pieces and infuse that into their trainings and PDs. Which is which is much needed. I mean, because that's where you see gaps, you know, and and that's where teachers have to like. I'm doing air quotes for those people who can't see it. Like, get creative. Well, you need some. I mean, it's not a warm and fuzzy thing. It's really not. It's something that needs to be done. I mean, you know, you talked about the gatekeeper of courses earlier. Well, in many ways, you know, having the right um, language uh, to to be able to access the math curriculum or any curriculum content is important. Having the right learning community is important, you know, I mean, that hierarchy of needs, you need to be able to have those things. So I feel like that's one thing that this whole pandemic has exposed quite a bit is the importance of establishing those um, learning communities and the importance of language um, as kind of a, the key to unlock the door to much of the content that is needed. And that just doesn't happen in a silo, but it needs to happen in the content classes as well. But I'm now getting into a different topic. So I'm going to bring myself back. And, uh, and you know, one of the things that you, you, you have mentioned these strides quite a bit, and the strides are basically the, the, the pieces of, um, or the main sort of topic ideas of the uh, uh, framework. But I, I, I'm going to let you explain them. And we're going to talk about two specifically. So, and we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of talking about those. Let's start with stride one, which you've mentioned. Um, re- real life, my dog is uh, barking because I am at home like everybody else uh, working from home. And so we'll just let him go up the stairs. There he goes. <laughs> Amazon is here. The holiday season is upon us. Um, so anyway, so stride one, it's all about dismantling racism in mathematics instruction, which seems to be kind of the foundation. We've already talked a little bit about that uh, on which we build everything else. And you use some really, really strong language and clear language here in these resources, like, and I'll quote, dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms. Um, Is the assumption here uh, that all educators believe that this exists? Um, Have you run into pushback about that? How have you handled it? I'm just curious about how you get people, if you, well, first, if you need to get people to accept that as truth. Um, And if, and if you, if you do, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, those are such good questions. So, you know, when we were developing the toolkit and the stride, and and this stride was really kind of coming to life, um, I had those same questions. I, you know, I thought, um, 
you know, is the that field. makes me feel better, Rachel. Because language, yeah. <laughs> I honestly, like that. I'm sorry, but I, I wrote that question. Like, am I like? I, it's a devil's advocate question, obviously, but one that I feel like we need to uh, unpack. So, sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And so, I, um, you know, but the the team there was there was consensus really on our team that no, this this is a conversation that we need to bring to the fore. And anyone and everyone who has worked in education generally in California, which is, you know, where our project was really taking place and working with, with students of color cannot deny that there is, uh, you know, racism at work, right? In our, in our society, in our classrooms, in our systems. I mean, it's, you, you look at, um, you know, outcome data, but also opportunity data, which students are even having opportunities to take higher level math classes. So I think that there was, there has, there's a sentiment, right, that we have to do something about this. And maybe not everyone is familiar or comfortable with using language like white supremacy or anti-racism, but there is, I think, a growing awareness that if we're not being explicit about how race factors into students' educational experiences and really obviously beyond education, but, you know, focusing on this math education piece, if we're not being explicit about the role of race, then we're not going to be effective in our solutions. And so as we've been talking to educators um, throughout the state since the toolkit has come out, I have been really um, quite... um, just kind of gratified by the reception we've received and longtime education leaders in our state who are saying, you know, this is um, kind of pushing the envelope, but it's, it's good. We need this conversation to be, you know, in the forefront. And, you know, other educators are telling us this is the tool. This is, you know, these are the resources that we've been needing, that we've been wanting and there's just been a lot of, of gratitude to our team for kind of taking a risk and putting that language, um, you know, out there on the table. And so, um, you know, I, I haven't received, um, I personally haven't heard the pushback. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's the, the people who are coming to our webinars, the people who are, you know, really choosing to engage with the work. They were ready for it. And I'm excited for them to be kind of leaders in their context because that's how this work is going to happen. It's going to happen, you know, one colleague talking to another colleague, a leader really modeling in their own school or, you know, in their department, um, what it means to be upfront about racism and um, how, how we need to really shift our practices so that our students have the affirming experiences that they need in order to really have equitable access to um, to the math learning. And Steve, uh, going back to the quote that I shared with you from Ro- Rochelle, you know, she she talks about honest self reflection and a willingness to confront and change our belief systems. Uh, I think we really do have to do a self reflection on what are our beliefs, what are our biases, because I always tell teachers that everyone has a bias towards some group of people for some reason. And if we, uh, if we are dealing with equity issues, if we're talking about equity issues, and if you're not feeling uncomfortable, then you're really skirting the issue. 
So I think uh, I think uh, the work that Rachel launched around all these strides is is uh, courageous, and I applaud her for that. I applaud Education Trust for it because that's those are kind of, those are types of conversations that we need to have, especially related to mathematics, but just in general, because uh, because of what's going on and what's uh, how uh, how racism is embedded in our institutions. And Steve, if I might speak to um, just my own personal experience working through this, I think was uh, the same experience as some of the other folks who've come to these webinars and um, have come to learn more about um, or come to this podcast to learn more about the tool is the folks aren't so much do we accept that there is inequities, but what are we what are we going to do? Like what's an actionable now as opposed to just realizing it's inequitable? And the Rachel sort of spoke to the discomfort. I had never said white supremacy before, mm-hmm. much less on a webinar that was being shared nationally. So I would get the Zoom sweats at the idea <laughs> of it because I've never I had heard that, the Zoom sweats. Oh my gosh. So just I'd never done that before. And even talking to Rachel, like maybe I'm not the person to do this work. I don't have this vocabulary that some of the other brave folks that were part of our team had. Um, 20 years in education an advocate for English learners, because as Jose said, growing up as an English learner and not really feeling part of, you know, a learning community that whole time, I had to look at uh, that self-reflection. And that was hard because you don't want to think that for 20 years, I worked in a system that wasn't doing its best for students. So why didn't I see that? Um, And that reflection was a little bit scary where you can't see me, but I'm white. But I come from a family, uh, mom is from El Salvador, dad came from Mexico, but I don't look like my cousin. So having to address that white privilege that was afforded to me that I didn't earn, that was a really uncomfortable process. But as Rachel said, it's required to then lead justly. So I think that's kind of where some of our people were at. They weren't here to challenge us on does inequity exist, but really what to do and then how to start that uncomfortable work. So you have a workbook in stride one where you can sit by yourself and reflect on your own biases and beliefs so that you can provide just a more just uh, world for our kids. Yeah, two two words that I've heard quite a bit is just, you know, uh, being courageous and and then that sense of of discomfort and being okay with being uncomfortable. And then you have to be okay with being uncomfortable having conversations with others. And then you have to be okay recognizing that you and everyone else has bias. It's not a matter of whether you have it or not. It's a matter of how you deal with it. I actually did a whole podcast episode maybe a couple months ago with um, Megan Fucciarelli, who does a lot of work on anti-bias training. She's amazing. And it was like, such a great learning experience for me just having that conversation that I topic of bias is is so crucial and I think a big part of it is like people feel ashamed that they that they have them and then they don't confront them they don't want that discomfort because they don't want to make someone else feel uncomfortable but we really all need to be on the same page um, there which is really hard to do like still for me hard to do and I'm glad that um, I'm really glad I asked that question because um you know, it struck me. It, it is courageous and it is bold. But if you're not courageous, bold, and transparent, then you're not going to get anything done. You have to push the envelope a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think hopefully the work that, you know, all the work that was put into this then sort of comes down to the people who are actually implementing it. Um, and so then the question becomes, how, how do we how do we push this to become more of a systemic change rather than sort of a siloed activity that's happening with with individual teachers what's what's the model there or what do you hope 
will happen or maybe what has happened as this has gone along to create more of a of a of a groundswell rather than kind of little spots in different places doing different things yeah i think that the effort really needs to come from um, multiple places you know there's lots of levers and we need to kind of pull on all of them the one that you know this toolkit is designed is to really um, build the will and the capacity of those who are in front, you know, who are closest to students, those who are the teachers and in in the schools and supporting teachers. Um, and I think that the the way we've envisioned the toolkit rolling out is that it becomes something that communities communities of practice and teams work on together. And that it, you know, we, we see that it's kind of taking on a life of itself in that it, there's interest and it's growing. And um, ultimately, that kind of um, groundswell, I think, will percolate up. But we definitely need leaders to be on board as well. And leaders need to be modeling this growth process alongside teachers. And when I say leaders, I mean coaches, I mean administrators at you know district levels and um, school and county levels. And this is something that, like I said, done in community, modeled, but not, you know, it's not going to be effective if it's perceived as a like a top-down mandate, because that doesn't get to the why. And people really need to kind of go through that process of understanding the why and the how um, in order for these practices to take hold. Otherwise, I think we could have policies that don't end up having impact. Not we to say that policy isn't important. I mean, that there's a whole other bunch of levers that you know folks in policy advocacy space are pulling on to try to move the policy as well, but the policies will not be effective if there isn't a, you know, a, an understanding on the ground of how to implement those policies. Right. I, and I would contend that we already have too many policies that aren't really, um, well, anyway, that's another story. Mm-hmm. But but I, I love the approach because, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, you're creating this whole thing, which is kind of a top-down approach, I mean, even though you're bringing in teacher leaders, but then it's being used in in places and the, the teacher leaders are the ones that are actually doing the work. And hopefully it happens in enough places that it becomes, again, more of that, uh, that groundswell approach, which I realize is, you know, it's a long-term thing. It doesn't happen overnight. But I think the timing of this is, you know, is, I think, um, really good in terms of people kind of looking for ways to change their practice, number one, because they need to, um, because of the situation we're in. And number two, which I think is more poignant and more important, because they say, what a great opportunity to kind of make some changes and to really investigate the way that we're doing things. Um, so hopefully that will, uh, that will play to, to all of our advantage. And Steve, uh, one last comment. Um, Besides looking at just teachers and administrators, we need to look at all the stakeholders who are involved in the education of our kids. That means we have to reach out to the community at large. We need to reach out to the parents. We need to reach out to the businesses or the government, local, state, and national. Because again, uh, if we leave it up to just teacher X at this school and teacher Y at another school, it might have a little impact in that one classroom, but it's not having an impact system-wide. Yeah, it's all a part of the equation. And that's another thing that, I mean, I'm certainly seeing a spotlight on now is the importance of family and community engagement and how that is, 
you know, I mean, it's always been something that's been talked about, but now it's, it's really impossible to do this educational thing without having the families on board when you're in remote, remote learning. I mean, it really is. Um, and so hopefully that will, uh, that will help us make those connections. Okay. As much as I'd like to continue, when there's so much we could talk about here, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of move on to stride four and, and Jose, I'm going to have you, uh, start, uh, with this, with this question. Um, stride four deals with uh, the interconnectedness of English language learning and the development of mathematical thinking, which is sort of right in our wheelhouse here at, at Elevation. And a lot of the listeners will will definitely appreciate you talking about this one. Um, so it's all about providing uh, equitable math experiences specifically to English learners. Um, and it really seems to get at that kind of gold standard of simultaneously teaching language and mathematical concepts, which is something that we all want to see happen. Um, so tell us, Jose, a little bit about how that is approached in Stride 4 here. Sure, Steve. Well, you know, first of all, uh, one of the messages that we're trying to convey to any user of this tool is that math teachers are language teachers. They are not just content teachers. So when we created this tool, we were trying to address the needs of our English learners to enhance their English proficiency you know, including language scaffolding that the teacher could provide. We're trying to encourage teachers to promote more student talk because our ALS in general don't have the, as many opportunities to really talk and express their understanding of the mathematics content or to even ask something as simple as a question to clarify their understanding of the math concept. Uh, we are really trying, when we created this tool, we were really trying to encourage teachers to uh, provide these opportunities for the kids to, you know, to share the thinking, to clarify their understanding, to talk. Uh, the tool was really focused on uh, effective instructional approaches in, in math in particular, but same could apply to any other content. And, uh, you know, just to do, identify, you know, what kind of language scaffolding practices can uh, the teacher or the instructor use to support the owls. You know, bottom line is that we wanted teachers to approach mathematics uh, thinking about English language development in tandem with mathematics comprehension. We don't want them to be separated. We wanted them to be thinking of them uh, together. Yeah, and that gets at that, like I said, that gold standard, which, uh, you know, which, which seems to be happening more frequently and to be able to have a structure to that. Um, is uh, is 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 really helpful, you know. And we're not just talking about um, we're not necessarily just talking about sort of math or sort of language instruction here. We're also talking about taking an asset based, culturally responsive approach to math instruction. So, curious if you give us a little taste of how teachers can use this research uh, or this resource. Sorry. Um, to bring EL experiences and skills into the math classroom. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. Like we have to recognize the assets. How do we go about doing that? I mean, does that, it must go beyond just sort of recognizing and building background. Sure. Yeah. And it absolutely does go beyond just um, trying to build background for, for starters. It doesn't assume that there's lack of background um, just because there's uh, perhaps not the English proficiency to um, explain um, thinking, but, really starts with a, a belief that all students can can learn at high levels. So we talked about that um, 
deficit narrative that that you hear around English learners as being underachievers, but um, instead of looking at those that exited out of program and how um, our reclassified students um, oftentimes outperform their English-only peers when it comes to um, the state math and um, English language arts assessment. So just believing that that students can learn because your beliefs and biases will will uh, color how you approach a student. And also, um, we have a section in there that looks at the typologies. So honoring the the learner variation that comes with being an English learner, um, not everyone is at the same um, level. So when you think of a student that's newly arrived um, to the U.S. uh, with um, limited English skills versus what we have in California, long-term English learner. So been here since kindergarten and in the sixth grade and above and still not meeting proficiency levels or your student who's, you know, just ready to exit um, is meeting all that criteria to reclassify. All of those um, different needs are going to need different support. So from your your light supports to just learning how to use a basic set of math vocabulary um, in the classroom. So our template provides teachers a, a starting point. So looking at their math curriculum that their uh, district or charter's given them, and then how would you um, be able to support those varying needs um, with the resources that are um, included in that stride four. It's deep. Uh, just real quick. Um, I also wanted to share another part of a quote that, you know, ultimately the goal of this stride four uh, tool is that uh, the goal is for every student to know that he or she has important contributions to make in the mathematics classroom and in the larger classroom of life. You know, so hopefully teachers will pull from this tool uh, what they need in order to help us reach that goal. And that's the that's the aspirational piece. That's like the inspirational quote. But the the not but and the the sort of nitty gritty of the whole thing is I think what what Melanie was just talking about is the idea that. It's so important to recognize, and I make the mistake all the time, and I, I fully admit it, of sort of talking about English learners. Well, it's not a homogenous group. This is a wide spectrum of students, huge, like just like any other student. And so the same idea of uh, sort of differentiating learning for everybody goes to, to, to English learners. And then the other thing, uh, you know, to get to that at, that aspirational quote that you were just, that you just mentioned, Jose, is, is making sure that you're doing something that's approachable. And one thing that you just said, Melanie, was that, you know, the uh, teachers will have an opportunity to look at their own curriculum and see how that they, how they can kind of, I don't know if retrofit is the right word, but, but look at opportunities to kind of infuse these things into the curriculum. So you're not trying to be super idealistic and create something totally new and say, yeah, just throw this in. I mean, it's hard to do, you know, has to be really intentional and teachers are working in a variety of constraints depending on their district uh, or school. Um, And so uh, I love that example as well. Um, You also, I don't know, remember who it was, but somebody just mentioned templates, which is a nice transition into the next question because I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about that. I looked looked those over and I really like um, how you provide those. and, and so I'd love if we, you could just walk us through what the templates include and how teachers can use them just to give us a taste of it. And we'll obviously link to all this information so folks can look because we're just scraping the surface here. But, but, um, but what, you know, what, what are they used? What do they include? And, and, and how, to, how, how do teachers go about using them? So uh, when we created this, Steve, uh, we designed it for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. But then we also created a general template. So I just want to show you what, or I just want to share with you what the template might look like. Because we started off, first of all, with identifying the priority content for a sixth grade. 
I'll pick on sixth grade since I was a sixth grade teacher at one point in my life. And uh, we picked uh, priority content. And this was taken from a document uh, published by Achieve the Core. So we identified the priority content. And then we focused, we zeroed in on a particular uh, math standard. Because we really wanted to uh, retain the rigor in mathematics for the kids. We didn't want to dumb it down. And along with that, we identified the standards for mathematical practice. Because teachers are always being encouraged to uh, focus on these standards of mathematical practices that the kids are going to implement. And then, as I said earlier, uh, we're doing it in tandem, the math content in tandem with the English language development. So we also looked at the intersection of the English language development with the math. So we looked at the ELD standards in California, and we tried to overlap them with the math practices. Then we jumped into, okay, so we gave the teachers in the template an example of a starter problem. And uh, it, in that starter problem, we also uh, then gave them opportunity to look at a, a correct solution, a no case solution, as well as an example of a, a, a solution that might not be correct. It's an error, a pitfall, a misconception that kids can make. So that part, that, that was included in the template. Along with both, all those three pieces, we identified some uh, actionables, some, uh, some things that teachers could actually take and use if they were going to do a, a lesson on, on that particular problem. And all of those actionables were taken from some great resources that the team found. Uh, we found some in uh, English Language Learner Success Forum. We found some from the greater... Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. The Greater Council of Council uh, Great City Schools. Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> that was in there somewhere. <laughs> but we found we found those resources. We dug up some resources from West Ed. So, uh, like I said, sort of problem, correct solution, um, pitfall or misconception, and then all the actionables along with uh, some resources, and. Uh, and then uh, we also, oh, then we also provided them with additional scaffolding uh, resources. Uh, you know, there was, uh, for example, there was uh, some resources that we pulled from WIDA, which some states use WIDA standards instead of the California ELD standards. That's great. But uh, in the WIDA standards or the WIDA document, we uh, pulled the teacher discourse move as well as the student discourse moves. And so, uh, that's what a template might look like. And like I said, uh, we developed one for sixth grade, a seventh grade sample, and an eighth grade sample, and then the general template included those kinds of pieces. And uh, Melanie, I'm sure you can add to all of that, what I just said. Yeah, just to call out that part of what we wanted the template to do was uh, recognize that with um, the pivot to distance learning, teachers are looking at prioritizing their content and their time. Like what activity am I going to, um, what am I going to leverage with students? Because perhaps our face-to-face, -face, you know, synchronous time is limited. So that error analysis part that Jose spoke to. So looking at a misconception and using that to sort of backwards, um, you know, dive deep into mathematical thinking. That was part of that intentional, like high rigor. We're not going remedial. We're not saying, like we're going to practice, you know, um, a rote skill. We're going to look at, you know, math facts 
together. We're going to leverage our time together with this high, um, you know, uh, just a cognitive, um, just load where they're going to have to look at this error analysis, have productive struggle. We know this is an error. How can you prove it's an error? You know, hearing from your your colleagues, what what do your um, classmates think? You know, is the right approach? Let's argue and let's you know uh, let's prove with evidence. So wanting to maximize that that teacher time with students too. Yeah, I was really impressed by looking through those those templates. I am not uh, a math teacher. I will not say I'm not a math person, although I was led to believe that I wasn't a math person <laughs> like many others when I was growing up. I was a language person. I guess I'm I'm in the right profession, but I'm learning <laughs> a lot more uh, about math and the connection between math and language. And it's I've really enjoyed these conversations because I think that they really um, – no, they really br they bridge a gap that we have now that we're really trying to kind of uh, to work on and wrestle with. And there's a lot of different ways that we can we can approach it. Um, and I think you know you've given us sort of a, a you we've, we've 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 definitely gotten into some specifics, but you've given us a basic idea of the work that you've done, which um, which I certainly really appreciate. Um, but I want uh, the folks to know who are listening, um, how can they learn more if they want to kind of dive a little deeper? Where would um, where would they go to find out more about uh, all this amazing work? Absolutely. Um, everyone can go to www.equitablemath.org. Um, and from, from there, you can download all of the strides. And there's also recordings that are linked. Um, so we we did webinars, we called them deep dive webinars into each of the strides. And so you can access a recording of the webinars. Um, there's also a place to um, share your name and email so that we can keep you updated as we have additional releases um, and or events related to um, to this work. But we're, you know, we're really excited to kind of see what comes next. We um, we're working with um, about 30 different dissemination partners. And so many of our organizations and partners are using the toolkit in their own professional development, in their own settings, um, sharing it with um, their networks. And so it's, um, it is continuing to develop and grow. And we're just kind of excited to, to see um, the great work that comes from this and also looking at what our next steps might be in terms of either adding to this toolkit or creating new toolkits or just new opportunities for people to engage in the work. Great. Well, I'm excited too. And let's definitely keep in touch. Maybe there's an opportunity to sort of update uh, folks on, on the work that you're doing or to dive into some of the stuff that we just did not have time to get into today. But I want to uh, tell you all that I really appreciate your time and coming on and um, and embracing kind of the messiness that might be a three-person uh, panel podcast style interview. I really enjoyed it uh, and I appreciate your all of your time. So Rachel Ruffalo, Melanie Morales-Van Heck, and Jose Franco, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for the great work uh, that you have done to create this wonderful toolkit. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Steve, it was really fun talking with you today. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. 
where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.